Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, D- Dave Sullivan, Northwestern District. Northwest District or Northwestern District? Northwestern. And the district is comprised of Hampshire and Franklin County, and we are so pleased the DA could be with us because we want to bring you in on the conversation that we were just having here in the studio a few moments ago about Trump, about his being on the ballot, about what the standards are, about who should get to decide, and what's going to happen in, in the Superior Court, the trial court in Maine, where the decision by the state secretary of state to keep Trump off the ballot is being appealed. What is going to happen in Colorado and what will the Supreme Court say? We're going to have all those answers right now from the district attorney, our district attorney, Dave Sullivan. What say you, district attorney? What's your legal analysis and what do you think is really going to happen? You better take a deep breath before you answer that question because you're going to need a lot of air. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Uh, Nice to see you, Buzz, as well. well. Let me just say, Happy New Year. Happy New Year it's to you, Buzz. Always and Bill. great to see you, yep. Mr. District Attorney Sullivan. Yep. And it, we're always appreciative of you coming into the studio. Yep. Uh, well, there's two decisions that need to be made. One is, does somebody get onto a ballot, uh, whether it's Trump or some other candidate? And the other is, are they eligible to be president? And I think it's two distinct things. Myself... Stop, I, stop, stop for one second. So you're saying that the decision as whether or not someone could go on the ballot is divorced from the legal consideration about whether the person could serve if they win? No, I think the ruling needs to be made. For example, uh, President Obama, President Bush, they're ineligible. They've already served served their eight years, so they're not eligible. So I think the question is... Someone underage, Exactly, not not 35 years old. Um, so those folks are ineligible. They may appear on a ballot, but they're ineligible to be president. So I think uh, I, I lean toward let the voters decide. In other words, you know, I, I think a secretary of state from Maine keeping uh, Trump off the ballot, I don't agree with that. I don't think one person can decide whether somebody can be on a presidential ballot in their state. So unless she did some extensive findings about insurrection – but I really think that uh, he's not eligible because he was part of that insurrection. And I think that it needs to go to the federal court, which is, as we know, the Supreme Court. And uh, as much as there's a, a supermajority uh, that are on that court that are Republicans, they've got to decide as a matter of law, was he part of that insurrection? And, you know, they're all claiming, many of them are claiming to be originalists. And if they're true originalists... What is an originalist? An originalist is saying that the Constitution, as it was written, is static, that we should ne- always go back to the roots of uh, laws and, uh, or, or to the laws that were made and decide as the founders would want it to be interpreted. So I think in this case, it's clear. He's part of that insurrection. I mean, he told them to go and... Uh, uh, what was the line, Bill? You, you will remember it. Oh, you mean when he's giving the speech at, yeah, the, at just the before they go, we will, we will go and we will fight? Yeah. I will go with you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will go with you. And he took stage left in a big suburban with Secret Service, which, as we've learned, uh, the Secret Service guy had to fight him off, you know, to, to take him away from the, the scene. But Can um, I circle back, uh, David Sullivan, to uh, – I want to go back to the main Secretary of State. Here's her contention. 
the job description is she's a chief election officer. Yep. Her job is to determine what's on the ballot. She read the 14th Amendment. She focused on the fact that if you have previously taken an oath of uh, loyalty to the United States Constitution and you then engage in insurrection, that the framers of the 14th Amendment, in this case, Section 3, said you are ineligible. So I'm not quite, and I know it's going to be litigated in the Maine courts to see whether under the state of Maine's constitution and laws really she has the authority or not that she claims. Uh, Not only to have the authority, she has the obligation to make the ballot free of people who are otherwise ineligible. And in her judgment, he was an insurrectionist, even though it hasn't been found to be the case in a court of law. So why do you disagree with her in the face of all of that? Well, number one, it hasn't been found in a court of law. I mean, as much as, you know, you may be Democrats, they, they say, oh, you know, he's definitely an insurrectionist, but he hasn't been found, you know, responsible in a court of law. And Nor was Robert E. Lee. No, and I, I don't think you need to be convicted. The, the Constitution says nothing about conviction because, as you know, you had thousands and thousands of Confederate uh, soldiers and officials that um, were ineligible. So they say. I think as you see Reconstruction, I'm sure you'd see many of these people on ballots somewhere along the line. Right, and, and what the historians are talking about these days is only those who previously took an oath were ineligible. Yeah. Jefferson Davis could have run for office. So uh, that's the originalist view of things. Yeah. So uh, what I see as very important is that it is a constitutional issue that needs to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. You have 50 states that are ruling 50 different ways. For example, Bill Galvin from Massachusetts says, hey, you know, Trump definitely gets on the ballot because he is, uh, is similar to mine is let the voters decide, you know. I mean, who's one person to decide whether somebody's on a ballot? What if, what if you know, Secretary of State then comes around and says, hey, Joe Biden isn't eligible because, you know, he's uh, got senility, right? That, pers- that person's, you know, saying he's ineligible, you know, because that would uh, result in, a, in an unfair situation for Joe Biden and for millions of people. This is Dan. My Dan's chipping in. Now, he's getting Even serious. Jim. He's getting well, heated here, here. Here's the answer to this. There was a political remedy to Donald Trump. It's the days after January 6th. The House impeached. The Senate could have convicted. And would this be a question now? He'd be, from my understanding, he would Which would have made him ineligible. Ineligible to ever run again. As exactly. a consequence under the That's impeachment the consequence clause. that I think people need to look back at and to see. And, and you can look at Mitch, what Mitch McConnell said days after. He said it was he it was behind it or a spiritual leader behind it or whatever. But had they voted to convict, this would have all been settled uh, three years ago. Yeah. So they had their opportunity. You know, the, you could say that Congress had their opportunity. And Mitch McConnell uh, didn't exactly go by his words. He, he voted uh, not to find him responsible. And he refused I, to allow witnesses and evidence uh, in the trial. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so hypocritical that he's critical of Trump and saying he's part of the whole, you know, insurrection scheme of things, but then turns around and, you know, to, to acquit. So, hey, many, you can say double jeopardy. Exactly what you raise is, has he been through double jeopardy already? S- since they had the impeachment proceedings, he was found, uh, he wasn't found guilty, he wasn't uh, impeached. I mean, he was impeached, but he wasn't found responsible by the Senate. 
So district attorney, like, like Bill, for example, don't you think that's double jeopardy? He's already been on trial with Congress. No, because it's a criminal law concept, and uh, this is really civil in nature. It's a non-criminal proceeding. I, I, I would love to know what you think about what the standard is and who gets to decide. Part of the originalism argument is that the Constitution makes very clear that states are in charge of elections, and state law determines how elections are conducted. And the idea that the federal government is going to decide this important, it's going to conduct this important function for the states, is actually antithetical to originalism um, and how the Constitution evolved. Uh, It's a states' rights kind of argument of course, that flips all of the political judgments. In, yeah, it's in funny how in Bush versus Gore that all of a sudden their states' but, right went out the window. So it's, all, it's as convenient as you want it to be. But I think that you make a good point, Bill, is that all these states, in other words, the running of elections. Uh, but I think when you look at qualifications and eligibility, I think you've got to look at the Supreme uh, Law of the Land, which is the United States Supreme Court. So, well. You, you mentioned Bush versus Gore. Really interesting. The Supreme Court in this case says, never, never cite this case to us. It's the only case like it. It'll never be another. And we invented an entirely new legal theory in order to make George Bush president. So pay no attention to this case. It has no presidential value. The Supreme Court says that in Bush versus Gore. Uh, and they said they came up with an entirely new theory of equal protection in order to make Bush the president. I mean, it is the most outrageously cynical, hypocritical decision from the Supreme Court to that think. I've read that they stop the counting of votes. Yes. And the recounts are so important because they do change elections. They well, do, that, and that, they would have in Florida. Yeah. And it would have been Florida. But what I think is really remarkable about that case and horrific about that case, the Florida Supreme Court under the Florida Constitution said that the recount is constitutional in nature in Florida and has to happen. And the United States Supreme Court said, no, you can't follow your Constitution, even though, as Bill said, that this determination is up to a state court to make. Here's the part that disturbs me. I'd appreciate it. It's a political judgment as well as a legal judgment, District Attorney Dave Sullivan. And it's this. There's never been a case like this. This Supreme Court has no problem reversing uh, decades and centuries of precedent whenever it wants to. When, when it, I think that the court essentially re- reverse engineers its decisions, what the results we want to get to and what words can we now use to justify getting to that result. That's how this court works. It's a highly political court. It's really, in my judgment, almost has become the third political branch of government. This court has never had a case like this. It can write whatever it wants for whatever reasons it wants to espouse. And I think it's a flat-out political decision by the court. I'm wondering if you disagree with that. I'm fearful of it. Fearful that would be a political decision, that it would be a 6-3 to three vote along really the lines that we already know, you know, with those that are appointed by, you know, Republican, you know, president, and most recently three by, you know... By Trump, uh, yeah. By Trump. So let me, let me ask you this. If you were on the court, and you got to write the decision, what would you say about who should decide this, at what the uh, quantum of proof should be, what the standard is? Are we talking about beyond a reasonable doubt? Are we talking about preponderance of the evidence? Are we talking about clear and convincing evidence that he was an insurrectionist? Are we talking about whether there has to be a criminal conviction? And who gets to decide all that? What would you say? I'd look at the, the language 
of the amendment and interpret it to the best of my abilities. So, I mean, you can't be political here because it's really, you look at what the roots are of the amendment, you know, which I think is very important, you know, and what they're trying to address. And in this case, the insurrection that happened during the Civil War (laughs) didn't seem too different from January 6th with people storming the Capitol saying, hey, we're not going to allow this vote to be certified. That's pretty serious business. And I think people that tried to trivialize it and say, well, there's, it was a tourist gone wrong. It was a bunch of baloney because we all know that the, many of the people there, the Proud Boys and other people, which are really seriously um, anti-government and anti-civil you know, rights or anything what you want to call them, um, that they were there for a reason. And that was for let's do whatever we can to stop Pence and people in Congress from certifying that vote so they could move forward with... Uh, Hang Mike Pence, five people killed, 140 injured. I just wanted to add what I think will happen here with the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court will give Donald Trump immunity for almost everything and claim, actually, he is held to responsible by the impeachment and conviction process in the Senate. And he was, like you said, found not guilty even in the second one, yeah. second charge. Now, I think everything he did after he was president, so here I'm talking about the Mar-a-Lago case, right, with the, the yeah. documents and the, everything he did because he was no longer president. See, I think the immunity ends once you're no longer president. For any acts you do, you can be charged. That's what I think will happen. I, I think I can make absolute immunity is a no-go with the Supreme Court. They cannot rule that a president oh. has a- absolute immunity because then they're saying, hey, he can kill. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> see, 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 that's where I disagree with you legally, even though I'm not a lawyer in this room. Here it is. They, he's not given absolute immunity. There is a process of trial. It's called impeachment and Senate conviction, and everything outside of that is immunity. That's my guess. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, know. but I, I just think under the sanctions of America, you use the criminal law. And... It's when that person can be tried. In other words, given that many things don't happen um, to a president during the term of office, then can you now later on, when he's no longer president, try him for those offenses? And I believe you can. I believe that the Supreme Court will have to rule that presidents don't have absolute immunity. Because nobody should be above the law. And it's a, it's a trite, f- f- used tritely, but seriously, when is a president accountable for their criminal actions? So, Bill, we have to figure out whether the opinion of Associate Justice Dan Torres or the opinion of Associate Justice David Sullivan is going to be uh, in the dissent. If I can quickly add, here's the problem with what you just argued. You can then start looking back at previous presidents who are still alive and potentially charge them for acts where they violated U.S. law. And I could get into the specifics of what I'm meaning, specifically for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and I'm talking about the war on terrorism mainly, but I could go back and look at specific federal law that they both violated. So if you're going to say Trump doesn't have immunity, will there be criminal cases opened against potentially both both, uh, both presidents previously? You see, this is where the Pandora's box opens. But there is a huge difference analytically between what a president does in furtherance of policies of the United States government and what he does as a political candidate. And Trump, with regard to January 6th, was not acting as president. He was acting as a political candidate. And I think that makes all the difference. He stepped out of his role as president. 
I don't believe that ever ends. I think that distinguishment is going to be abolished. I don't think that. I think he's every act he does, as long as he's president, is considered presidential, is my view. Overruled. We'll be right back. (laughs) You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we continue our conversation with our district attorney, David Sullivan. Buzz, you were raising an interesting conversation, uh, have engaged in an interesting conversation with the district attorney while we were off air. Why don't you bring our listeners in, please? Well, the first question that I ask uh, District Attorney David Sullivan is whether or not when he opines about something that's outside of his, his lawful jurisdiction as District Attorney, as a chief law enforcement official of this region, uh, something that's federal, something over which he has no control, um, he's got an influential voice. You are an important lawyer in our system, and uh, people listen to you. Are you speaking as a private citizen, or are you speaking as a duly elected district attorney who has a platform, who has a soapbox to educate us all when you talk about something like the insurrection clause? I think I'm talking as a private citizen. Um, You know, it's not within my capacity of district attorney to be ruling on insurrection or, you know, whether somebody should be on the ballot. So it's my personal opinions. Okay. I'd like more of your personal opinion. Who is supposed to decide whether a candidate is actually put on the ballot. If it's not the state secretary, uh, state se- the secretary of state for a given state, if it's not the state courts, who decides? And I go back to my question, which is, given that there is no, there is no precedent for this, can't the Supreme Court simply write on this blank piece of paper anything it wants at this point, and no one will have a leg to stand on. You can criticize the analysis, but they're not going to say, oh, there you go, you overruled this case again, here you go, because there is no precedent one way or the other. Well, I think secretaries of state, obviously there's 50 of them in in our country, um, they decide on a regular basis who should be on a ballot and who shouldn't. I I understand that because, you know, some states say if you're a felon, you know, you can't be uh, eligible uh, to be on the ballot. It's just clear in their constitution that, that they're not on the ballot. I just see that it's a national election. It's federal. Uh, it's the highest political office. And I think that the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, primary jurisdiction over that, that call, although it's never been made. Well, I do, but I, but think I think you've got to look at the federal constitution being interpreted, the ultimate say on whether it, it should be uh, – uh, whether Trump should be on the ballot, I think should go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And you might you might not like them, Bill, but they're the we have it and the, we got to deal with it. And that's who's going to hear it, I think. But I I just want to follow Bill's statement there by reading from Article Two, Section One of the United States Constitution, which defines how presidents and vice presidents are elected. And it says this: the second full paragraph, quote. Each state shall appoint, comma, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, comma, a number of electors, and it tells you how the electors are chosen, and then it tells you that it is the state that determines the election for president and vice president. It's, it, it couldn't be clearer, and nowhere in there does it say the federal government plays a role, as Bill was saying. It's the state that makes the determination. So why should the United States Supreme Court obviate, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the differences that different states have under their own constitutions where it says each state shall appoint in such manner <coughs> as the legislature thereof may direct. 
That seems like clear language for an originalist. Yeah, I think it is somewhat clear, but I think, again, the finding of fact about uh, was there an insurrection that was led by, by Trump? And, you know, and I think that, um, again, I say that, you know, with uh, whether it's Colorado or Maine or another state, what are there findings of fact that clearly point to uh, Donald Trump leading that insurrection? I, I believe there was, but that doesn't mean that I'm held to an arbiter. In other words, the Secretary of State, you know, she had to make her own opinion. But I think that when there's conflict between states, in other words, there's some that have already ruled. No, we don't see that constitutional issue um, being decided by us. We see it. We're just not going to decide on it. So you have states that are ruling that uh, Trump can be on the ballot, some that aren't on the ballot. But I think ultimately we don't want to divide the nation. And, and, and that's why our U.S. Supreme Court, I think, is the ultimate arbiter of that decision about whether he should be on the ballot or not. We keep talking about this as if it's a matter of law. And I think it is going to be decided by the Supreme Court as a matter of fact. And who decides the facts? Because Trump says, I was not engaged in insurrection. I did not support any of the violence that went on on January 6th. I was not part of the planning. I am not an insurrectionist. Whatever you think of any of the other people at the Capitol that day, I was not part of that. And you haven't proven that I was, and you haven't given me due process, and you haven't allowed me an opportunity to be heard and to present evidence and so on. And one person in one state cannot simply make a factual finding when there's no standard. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not clear and convincing evidence. We don't know what it is. There's, I had a First Amendment right to speak, and I'm entitled to due process, and both those rights are being violated by this decision. That's what he's going to argue, right? Yeah, and I agree he has First Amendment rights, but it's the actions that were beneath those words that amount to the insurrection. It, it wasn't the words themselves, him standing on the podium, but it was all that underlying uh, plot, so, so to speak, to undermine our elective process. And that is so fragile, and, which we now know, but very important to the democratic uh, country that we're, we live in. And as you, both of you lawyers, know that as soon as a witness takes the stand, that the witness's credibility is always at issue. And the mere fact that Washington Post Pinocchio column found 31,000 lies by Donald Trump over a, a four-year I'm period. Surprised. I thought there was more than that. His, I'm surprised. I thought there were more than that, you know? Doesn't, doesn't bear on his credibility of I didn't intend at all. Yeah. Yeah, but what was the process for determining, at least in Colorado, there was a five-day trial. In Maine, there was a secretary of state uh, sitting at her desk saying, I've looked at all the evidence that is publicly available, and I determined he's an insurrectionist, and therefore I'm going to apply uh, this constitutional provision and say he can't be on the ballot. That does because not— Because the office is in Maine of Secretary of State is a constitutional office. It's in the original constitution of Maine when they broke away from the Bay State, Bay Colony, whatever it was called, Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and there it says that the Secretary of State shall determine who is eligible to appear on the ballot. That's what she said in her press conference— uh, that I that I saw, and I, I haven't researched it, but I assume that she's telling the truth. But that's now being litigated in main courts to see whether or not she does have the power that she asserts. If she's found to have that power as a constitutional matter in Maine, I say she has that power as a constitutional matter. Each state shall determine 
and shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof should may direct. Well, I'll tell you the most nervous person in Washington, D.C. is John Roberts. Because this decision, if it goes to the Supreme Court and they agree to hear it, could undermine the legitimacy of the court on a permanent basis if it's deemed to be political. And I don't see how it won't be deemed political because obviously you have people um, that are on the left or right, and they're going to look at this as a very political decision. And just the way – I mean, it's easy to keep track of the Gore versus Bush um, how many votes were cast and what the deciding was. It wasn't, you know, 80 million to 70 million. It was five to four, you know, and, and I don't think that that uh, stain on the Supreme Court is uh, ever going to go away because of the way they contorted the, uh, the law and stopped the legitimate voting uh, uh, voters' rights, the ballot. And, you know, and maybe it would have ended up being Bush, but stopping that recount, which we all know is a precious, precious right of voters to say, you didn't count the ballots correctly. And he ended up winning by, uh, Gore ended up winning by 7,200 votes. So there you go. Yeah. I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said, with regard to the Supreme Court, I don't have to be a brilliant constitutional scholar. I need to be able to count to five meeting five to four, and I win. But in this instance, I agree with you, Dave Sullivan. If John Roberts can't bring the court along and it ends up with the Democrats versus the Republicans and or the conservative, uh, highly conservative, and that's being generous description, uh, prevailing, uh, the legitimacy of the court once again will be called into question, and the issue will be and will become can the Supreme Court survive itself? District Attorney, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Have a great and healthy year. Great year ahead for you guys. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.